0: intercession a pleading urging or making of a petition in behalf of oneself or another even one's enemies john 9 is considered the great intercessory prayer christ was and is the great intercessor in like measure you must make intercession for those who fall short in your life you should thank god for the opportunity that they give to you to show their charity It may seem odd to do this when you start, but prayer and grace go together. You will find you are able to pray with sincerity for those in your life after you have spent time on your knees on their behalf. Grace begets grace. Do it and you will grow as a result. Just as Christ made intercession for all of mankind through the atonement, see 2 Nephi one paragraph six so nephi also makes intercession on behalf of his unbelieving brothers and cried unto the lord first nephi one paragraph nine for those who had rejected him nephi's conduct makes him a type of christ nephi shows himself to be faithful in the face of adversity he has been charitable to the critical as a result of this he is ready to receive more Christ teaches man to love his enemies, bless those who are trying to do him harm, and pray for his persecutors. This is the only way to become like him. He is an intercessor. Becoming an intercessor for others is part of one's development, through grace, to become as he is. It is through this that charity becomes a part of one's character, see Moroni 7, Paragraph 9, and Charity is a Necessary Attribute in One's Character, see 2 Nephi 11, Paragraph 17. Many great souls have interceded for their fellow man. Intercession for one's fellow man, including those who give offense, is one of the hallmarks of the saved soul. This is who Abraham was and why he became a friend of God. I've hesitated to even discuss the exceptions to the rule because everyone wants the exceptions to apply to them. No one wants to comply with the rule. The higher way is, however, found in following the rule. It should be an absolute sacrifice, and a painful one at that, for the exception to be applied in your life. If an inspired condemnation is required at your hand and by your voice, then immediately afterward you should make intercession with the Lord for those condemned. That is the way of those who know the Lord. Those who have been forgiven much, including those who have been forgiven everything, always love much in return. Luke 5, paragraph 21 Once forgiven, man must forgive. He, or she, must take on himself, or herself, the role of the intercessor by accepting the shame and abuse of this world and must forgive and pray for those who give offenses. Through this, each comes to understand his Lord because he will be like him. Some few will forgive and plead for the weaknesses and failings of others. They will forgive and thereby be forgiven. They will obtain for themselves a judgment based only on mercy, for they will have shown mercy to others. This atoning act of love and intercession will be the hallmark by which the children of God are identified in the day of judgment. See Matthew 3, paragraph 12. Only the peacemakers can be trusted to live in peace with one another. All others are unfit for the presence of God. Sometimes the relief other people need can only come from you. Under inspiration of the Spirit, we can relieve the burdens of those around us. Iron Rod The Word of God, as seen in vision by both Lehi and Nephi. 1 Nephi 3, paragraph 10 and 1 Nephi 4, paragraph 5 The path back to the tree of life is found in the revelations from God as contained in large measure in the scriptures. Scriptures are of vital importance to mankind. Nephi has an angel instructing him as well as Christ being shown to him and the message includes this specific teaching about the importance of revelations and the scriptures. There are two different words used by Nephi regarding contact with the iron rod or word of God. Joseph Smith translated the two words as cling or clinging for one, withhold or holding for the other. The different word used raises the question of meaning. If they meant identical things, then the same word would have been translated. Therefore, there must be a reason for the different words. And it came to pass that I beheld others pressing forward, and they came forth and caught hold of the end of the rod of iron. And they did press forward through the mists of darkness, clinging to the rod of iron, even until they did come forth and partook of the fruit of the tree, First Nephi 2, paragraph 10. Behold, he saw other multitudes pressing forward. And they came and caught hold of the end of the rod of iron. And they did press their way forward, continually holding fast to the rod of iron, until they came forth and fell down and partook of the fruit of the tree, First Nephi 2, paragraph 12. Some catch hold, then cling; Some hold, then hold fast. Both of these different approaches result in the persons reaching the destination, then partaking of the fruit but they are situated differently as they move along the process. Some are clinging and some are holding as they move toward their destination. To cling implies something frantic, something charged with emotion, and something more desperate than to hold. Holding seems calm, thoughtfully committed, and more methodical than does clinging. From this, it's possible to conclude that there are at least two kinds of people who will make their way to partake of the fruit of the tree of life in this world. For one group, the process is unnerving, fearful, and emotionally wrenching. They cling on despite earth and hell. They fight to retain their grip, and they make heroic efforts in the opposition they face. They cling because they cannot relent, cannot relax and know they face peril as they live their lives daily. For them their hopes are kept despite all their fears. They cling because they desire more than the opposition can deter them. For another group, the process is less emotional, but nonetheless filled with determination. They are not as charged with fear, but face what comes to them calmly and with the assurance that the Lord's word is in their hands and will be a refuge that will bring them to eternal life. There is another, more likely possibility, as well. There are not two groups, but only one. From time to time, everyone faces moments of difficulty. The only way to stay with the rod is to cling. Then the seasons change, the storm relents, and calm returns. During those times when life improves, the person can continue to hold and move forward, but they have purchased the season of calm by the things they have endured in faith. Now they know it is only necessary to hold on, and all things will come to them. There is not a life that gets lived without challenge, difficulty, and seasons of despair. Everyone will at times be required to cling, and at other times have the ability to hold the course. Whether it is the one season or the other, however, at the end of the journey one may be able to lay hold on eternal life. Isle of the Sea Everything that is not part of the great Euro-Asian-African landmass. Although North America is currently regarded as a continent, in the Book of Mormon vernacular, it is an Isle of the Sea, see 2 Nephi 7, paragraph 5. Further, most of Israel was relocated onto the Isles of the Sea. See 1 Nephi 7, paragraph 2. So when the Lord affirms he speaks to those on the Isles of the Sea, he is confirming that there are multiple locations, involving multiple parties, each one of which has received sacred communication from him. JACOB'S LADDER A connection and transit between the heavens and earth which Jacob, later named Israel, saw in a dream recorded in the old covenants, and he dreamed, and behold, a ladder, in Hebrew. Sulam Set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac, Genesis 9, paragraph 20. Joseph Smith said, Paul ascended into the third heavens, and he could understand the three principal rounds of Jacob's ladder, the celestial, the terrestrial, and the celestial glories or kingdoms, where Paul saw and heard things which were not lawful to utter. I could explain a hundredfold more than I ever have of the glories of the kingdoms manifested to me in the vision, where I permitted and were the people ready to receive them. Joseph also said, when you climb up a ladder, you must begin at the bottom and ascend step by step until you arrive at the top. And so it is with the principles of the gospel, you must begin with the first and go on until you learn all the principles of exaltation but it will be a great while after you have passed through the veil before you will have learned them. It is not all to be comprehended in this world. It will be a great work to learn our salvation and exaltation even beyond the grave. The principles of the gospel are not supposed to be comprehended in one bite. Everyone progresses. The ladder that he's talking about climbing is, in fact, the ladder that is ordered and the one Jacob referred to, But whenever one begins that climb, he begins at the bottom. And so mankind finds themselves here, at the bottom of it. Notwithstanding finding themselves here, there are absolutely and variably seven rungs on Jacob's ladder. No one can arrive at the throne of God in any other way than all have taken to arrive there. Everyone develops the same way through the successive stages of Jacob's ladder. In the afterlife, there are different rungs on Jacob's ladder where different powers are fixed, angel, archangel, principality, power, dominion, throne, cherubim, or seraphim. They may all be called powers of heaven. These powers have no desire to control or compel others to rise on Jacob's ladder. These are developmental stages of growth through which all must pass if they want to ascend nearer to God. Each individual on Jacob's ladder should be moving toward perfection. Of course, some have elected to rebel and descend. But the ladder was ordained as a means for ascent. The great regret for man in the afterlife relates to his refusal to take advantage of the opportunity here to further his ascent. What is the first rung on Jacob's ladder? It is to have your calling and election made sure through the Holy Spirit of promise. That is the beginning. There are seven stages of development through which God's children must pass. It is not all to be done in this life. Christ is the prototype of the saved man, and he qualified by passing through these stages of development. When anyone arrives at the end of the journey through the seven rungs of Jacob's ladder, they will discover that the mother was present throughout that journey. She is present all along the way through the seven pillars. Scripture reveals a more complex afterlife, where ascent to God's throne is more than a single step upward after this life. Joseph Smith said, It will be a great while after you have passed through the veil before you will have learned them. Jacob's Wrestle with the Angel A Sacred Embrace when one considers that the word conventionally translated as wrestled can just as well mean embrace, and that it was in this ritual embrace that Jacob received a new name and the bestowal of priestly and kingly power at sunrise, the parallel to the Egyptian coronation embrace becomes at once apparent. See Genesis 9, paragraph 44. See also Sacred Embrace. Jesus Christ as the Father. Think of the word father as role and not identity. If you take it as role and not identity, all the problems go away. If you hear the voice of God speaking to you, telling you Psalms 2, paragraph 2, you are my son. This day have I begotten you, the voice you will be hearing will be Christ's. No one gets out of this world, back into the family of God in eternity, without Christ as their father. We're all the descendants of Adam, which means we're going to die. But if we become sons and daughters of God, we become sons and daughters of that God who won the victory over the grave, who becomes our father, which is why the Book of Mormon calls him the very eternal father, because Christ has to be your father in order to escape the doom which belongs to Adam. If you track the genealogy back of every one of us, you are going to find that the head of all that is a dead man who offended the father. When Christ worked out his salvation right down here, among us, we read in John, he's talking about himself. He said, I can of my own self do nothing. What I see the father do, that do I. In the closing verses of Matthew, after he's resurrected, after he's ascended back to the father, after he's reported to the throne, he comes back and says, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth, Matthew 13, paragraph 4. He no longer says, I need to follow what the father did. He says, in essence, I've completed the ascent. I am at the throne of God. I'm now the one who will rescue you. I have the power to rescue you. I have conquered death on your behalf. Christ is the Father when you think of it as role instead of personality or identity. When you get into personality or identity, you wind up with a mess on your hands. In our prayers, there is no reason why that Father, to whom you address, should not be expected to have wounds in his hands and in his side and in his feet. When you hope to be rescued from the grave, he's going to be the father that gets you out of there. You address the father, but he has become the father. The problem we have is that we want to assign a personality. We want to assign a role. We do not want to accept a status. We want personality instead of a role that gets played. Christ is the father. Christ was the son. He had to come in a subordinate position. He had to come into the world contaminated with blood. He had to have within him the seeds of mortality in order to have the capacity to die, because without the capacity to die, he couldn't die. But his death had to be unjust so that it violated the law of justice. Justice had to be offended by the death of the Lord so that he, going into the grave, could say, an eternal wrong has been committed, because the wages of sin is death and I've committed no sin. I did not earn the wages of death, therefore I have the power to lay claim upon my life and take it up again, because that is the law of justice. And justice had to surrender to his resurrection. So Christ comes out of the grave and is resurrected, and he wants to pull you out of the grave. And justice says, no, she is a sinner. And Christ says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Justice has been satisfied. I was entitled to eternally live. What you took away from me when you killed me, when you took my life, was eternal. You robbed me of eternal life. Therefore, I can claim her, too. Because the infinite of what you stole from me satisfied you infinitely. I am giving her a pass because, justice, you offended me infinitely. And Christ did this in order to bring us all back. But the only way we're getting out of here after we shed these bodies and return from the grave, is through him. And he becomes the father. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 1, paragraph 63. He's going to give it as a free gift to everyone. The only question is, what will the quality of the afterlife then be? because that's based upon a law that was predicated before the foundation of the world upon which infinite blessings are conferred. The father of your eternal life will be Christ, TNC 18, paragraph 1. He is your father who is in heaven, because your continuation after the grave will come through his sacrifice. He will literally provide you with the resurrected body you will inherit. This makes him the father, Mosiah 3, Paragraph 2. Secondly, they are his teachings which will provide you with more than just resurrection. He will provide the further possibility of glory to you on the conditions he has made possible through obedience to him. The one you follow, whose teachings you accept, whose ordinances you accept, is also your father, 1 Corinthians 1, paragraph 17. The role of the father is to raise his seed in righteousness. Christ's teachings are given in his capacity of a father to all who will follow him. Through his teachings you can have a new life here and now. You can be born again as his seed, 1 Peter 1, paragraph 5. To do that you must first accept his role as your father and guide. Then you must further accept his role as father and redeemer. When you do that, he gives you a new life by his teachings and new life by his ordinances. Here, excluded from the presence of Heavenly Father Amon, we have no way back except through Christ, Mosiah 1, paragraph 15. He must become our Father to bring us back again into the Amen's presence. Christ visits here. Christ labored here, lived among us, ministers still among us, and though resurrected, still walked alongside two of his disciples. He appeared in an upper room, cooked and ate fish on the lake shore, and appeared to many. He will come to dwell here again. The Father Amon, however, only appears in a state of glory, has not stood here since the fall of Adam, and awaits the completion of the work of Christ before he will again take up his abode here. Christ is not the same person as Father Amon. Christ becomes the father of all who are redeemed through him. Therefore, by redeeming you, Christ has become your father in heaven. You will have many fathers, including Christ, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and in our dispensation, Joseph Smith as well. And all these will also be children of Father Amen. Though Christ is a glorified, eternal God, reigning in heaven and holding the power to exist from eternity to eternity king benjamin is informed by an angel that he will condescend to dwell in a tabernacle of clay mosiah 1 paragraph 14. to be exalted is to already be in possession of what one hopes to acquire in mortality that is christ was already exalted He did not come here for his advancement, according to this angel, but he came and descended into a tabernacle of clay in order to serve us. Christ lives. He is the one who redeemed all of us. He has a rightful claim as the father of us all. In the resurrection we come forth out of the grave as his children because he purchased with his blood our continued life. We symbolize that future event when we are baptized by going under the water and coming up again. It symbolizes resurrection. It is to be born again a new creature in Christ. Baptism is a preliminary, ceremonial, necessary sign that we accept Him as our Father. He is real. I bear witness of Him. I have stood in His presence. I have spoken with Him. He speaks in plain humility.